The church defined, that seems to be a whole new question for us, doesn't it? I mean, everything has changed about church in the last two months, or almost everything. I mean, the things that you associate with church, people say, you know, hey, where do you go to church? Well, I go to church here. Well, none of us go to church these days. And when you think about the programs that we're so used to, our, our children's ministry programs, our youth ministry programs, all of our groups that we're used to gathering in, all of the programs that we call church, we no longer call those programs church anymore. And so it's time for us to really rethink this question, how do we really define the church? And let me just begin by saying, it's not our job to define the church because God has already defined the church for us. But it does beg the question, how can we really be the church in a time like this? And I've, of course, been thinking about that a lot. So this morning, we're going to begin taking a biblical look at how God defines the church. What does the church look like in Scripture? What are the values of the church? What are the mandates of the church? What are the characteristics of the church? Because, folks, we have to figure out in a whole new context how to be the church today. And I want us to begin in the book of Acts. <clears throat> so take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. It's right after John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. And we're going to start right at the beginning. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And here's what he has to say. Uh, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To those he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. <clears throat> Verse 4 always gets my attention every time I start reading the book of Acts again. He tells them to wait. The first instruction when he's going to leave the earth for his people is to wait. But how many of you would say with me, waiting is one of the hardest things there is to do? It is hard to wait. It's hard to wait for anything. It's certainly hard to wait on God. Uh, maybe you've been seeing, uh, there's kind of a new social media trend where people are taking their toddlers and giving them a patience test. Have you seen this? You, you take your kid, you put them on the, on the chair, you put maybe a bowl of M&Ms in front of them or some ice cream or some cookies or something like that, and you say, hey, you're going to get to have this. But you have to wait because mommy or daddy needs to leave the room for just a minute. I'll be right back. You just wait for me to come back and then you can have these. Well, the camera is rolling and you should see the looks on the face of the kids as they stare into a bowl of M&Ms being told to wait. And, and their hands move out and they move back. They put their hands on their head. They, they get this screwed up face going, oh, 
It, it looks like they're being tortured. And of course, I would say a good 75% of them fail miserably. And by the time mom walks back in the room, the kid's got his face buried in a bowl of M&Ms like a dog eating out of his dish. Because it is hard to wait for something great. And here at the church, the, the apostles, the original disciples, followers of Jesus, they have been waiting for the kingdom of God to be ushered in. And now Jesus is risen from the dead. And what is his instruction to them? Hey guys, wait. I want to read to you also, we're going to come back to Acts, so keep your finger there. But I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 40. Old Testament book of Isaiah, and I want to read to you the last verse of Isaiah chapter 40, which is verse 31. It'll be familiar to some of you. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So apparently there's some upside to this idea of waiting. There's something when we wait upon the Lord that he does in us. In fact, let me give you the context of that verse. Let me, let's just skip back to verse 27 and hear what he's saying. Uh, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? In other words, why are you crawling out, hey, where's God? How come God's not doing anything? Why isn't God taking care of me? Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow uh, weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those that wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It's an amazing promise God gives us about what happens when we're willing to wait. Man, this season that we're in, it is forcing the issue, isn't it? It is forcing us to wait for things that we want to see happen, good things, valuable things, things that we believe are absolutely in the will of God and we want to see them happen and yet we have to wait. Those early followers of Jesus, they thought they knew what was best. They had been thinking they knew what was best all along. Remember when Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week? They expected him to ride in on a white horse and overthrow Rome. But instead he rode in on a donkey and got himself crucified. Not what they were waiting for. At that point, they became scared. They ran and scattered and hid because they were afraid that the same thing was going to happen to them. They had no idea what was about to happen on the third day. But as you may know, on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And when he did that, he changed everything. He had to seek them out. He had to find them. He had to gather them back up and say, I'm not finished yet. And they said, yes, This is awesome. Now we understand he had to die so he could raise. And now he's going to conquer Rome. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, 
It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Have you noticed? More often than not, when we think we know what's best, God has other plans. These guys, they, they think they get it now. He's risen, now he's going to conquer Rome. Is it time, Jesus? Is it now time for the kingdom to be ushered in? Is it now time that you're going to restore Israel? Is it now time that you're going to deliver us in the way we were expecting you to deliver us all along? It's, it's like a, a kid in the back of, of the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's hard to wait. But God had other plans. Instead of conquering Rome, he taught them. He encouraged them, prayed for them, he spent time with them. And right here in Acts chapter 1 verse 4, he instructed them to wait. It is hard to wait on God. But there's something that happens when you do. You gain new strength. You mount up with wings like an eagle. You're able to run without getting tired. You're able to walk without growing weary. That time of waiting on the Lord is never wasted by God. But it's astonishing to me how often it's wasted by us. Those times when we can't get what we want. Those seasons when things just don't seem to happen in our timing. Those are times when God is often doing the greatest things in our lives. And we see that when we look back. But man, in the moment, it's so hard to see. As a pastor, my prayer for you during this crazy season of life. My prayer for the whole church, not, not just Grace Fellowship, although certainly our church, but, but for Christians everywhere, everybody who names the name of Christ, I am praying that God will help us to give him our full attention during this time. I'm praying that, that we'll be able to resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands, try to force things to happen the way we want them to happen, when we want them to happen. Because we have limited understanding. Oh, I know we have access to the internet, so we must know everything, right? Or not. God has unlimited understanding. I'm praying that God will use this time to do some of the things in us that we really need to see done. I'm praying he'll use this time to do things like we've never seen before. And guess what? God's already answering that prayer. Think about this. Some of you are watching this right now, even though you are not a part of Grace Fellowship. You have never been a part of this church. A lot of you have never really been a part of Christianity, never even been a part of the church at all. And yet, somehow, some way, somebody got you to tune in and you've been watching these worship services for the last few weeks and the Lord is speaking to you. You're not used to to hearing the word of God taught, but you're hearing the Bible taught and you're going, oh my goodness, this is practical. Oh my goodness, this makes sense. And God is speaking to you in a time like this. But my guess is that for many of you, you have said no to invitations to join people for worship services in a building. But online, you're doing it. See, God's not wasting this time. You would have never guessed three months ago that this is how you would be spending your Sunday mornings. You would have never guessed three months ago that the word of God would be getting through to you in such a way that you're actually looking at life change today. But God's been working. 
even while we've been waiting. Because God doesn't call us to wait for no reason. God had a plan in Acts 1, and God has a plan now. Let's look at verse 8. Jesus now, he's speaking to his disciples, giving them these last instructions. Here's what he says in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses, he says. Those of you who have a personal relationship with me, those of you who have had your life changed by me, you're actually eyewitnesses of who I am and the power that I have, says Jesus. And you are going to be my witnesses even to the remotest parts of the earth. 2,000 years ago, that was his plan, and that's his plan today. And I'm always astounded. I always laugh a little bit when I read these next couple of verses because after this great speech that Jesus makes, you're going to be my witnesses. I want you to go and wait uh, for me in Jerusalem. Verse 9, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. He literally floated away. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. These are angels. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It cracks me up. All of a sudden there's two angels. These guys are all standing with their head up and their jaws hanging open, watching as Jesus just floats away into heaven. And of course they're astonished. They can't take their eyes off the sky. And all of a sudden they hear the voice of these angels. And the angels are saying, hey dudes, what are you doing standing here? Why are you looking into the sky? What do you expect to happen? Jesus told you what to do. Go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. And when you get there, what are you going to do? Wait. Wait, because power is coming in the person of the Holy Spirit. But you can't do it without him. You need to wait. And they waited. They gathered 120 of them in that upper room, and they waited. Patiently, prayerfully, thoughtfully, worshipfully, they waited. Until on the day of Pentecost, when they were gathered together in an upper room praying and worshiping God, suddenly the Holy Spirit entered his people and a movement began that has never stopped since. It has shaken the entire world for all of eternity. That movement was called the church. And, and that day was the day of Pentecost. It was a celebration. There were people all over Jerusalem that day from other nations and other cities who had come just to celebrate the Pentecost um, feast. And it was on that day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church and people were drawn to them by the thousands. And Peter stands up on Pentecost Sunday and he preaches from the book of Joel to show them that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and this is in fact the day that the Holy Spirit is empowering his church just as Joel had taught. And on that day, in the midst of signs and wonders on the preaching of the word of God, 3,000 men plus women and children are swept into the kingdom of God that day, and the church is launched. Not long after, 
uh, some of them are going up to the temple in order to worship. And there's a man there. They see him there all the time. He's a beggar because he's been crippled from birth. And everyone in the city knows him because they walk past him every time they go into the temple. And he cries out to Peter and John for help. And they don't have money, but what they have, they give him. They, in the name of Jesus Christ, heal him of his um, lameness. And as a result, he jumps up shouting. And everyone is astounded. And the number of new believers becomes 5,000 on that day. The church was born, but not like they expected. And, and, and it's not long before persecution begins. I mean, they hung Jesus on a cross and he said to them, if they do this to me, they'll do even more to you. And certainly the persecution began. And it wasn't long before there was public stonings. There was a guy named Stephen who was a leader in the church and he was proclaiming the gospel. And the Jews gathered around him and stoned him to death because he was claiming that Jesus is the son of God. And among that group of executioners was a guy named Saul. And Saul was bloodthirsty because he was so angry about what was happening with the people calling themselves the way, the, the early church. And so he received documents from the, the leadership so that he could go from place to place and he was allowed to persecute anyone claiming to be a follower of Jesus. Some were put to death, others were jailed, others were dragged back to Jerusalem for trials. And, and this man, Saul, so angry and so full of um, vile thoughts toward the church, encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's knocked flat on his face, and the risen Jesus speaks to him. And he, he basically says, I have a plan for your life. And that man, Saul, becomes the Apostle Paul. And once the Apostle Paul stops persecuting the church and begins instead leading the church, he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And the gospel spreads to Asia Minor. And the gospel spreads even into Europe. And, and the Gentiles have now become a part of the church. And now we're talking about tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of believers early in that first century church. The gospel spreads to Asia. The gospel spreads throughout Europe. But even in that second half of the first century, there are false teachers. Heresies are beginning to spring up. There are many who are teaching that Jesus is not, in fact, human. Others are teaching that Jesus is not, in fact, God. When the Bible says he has to be fully human and fully God in order to pay for the price of our sins. And so there's this Gnostic heresy and all of these other heresies that are going around. Paul begins to write to correct those heresies. John begins to write his epistles to correct those heresies. And by the end of the first century, all the apostles are gone. And the church enters in to what is known as the early church period. Figure about 100 A.D. to about 600 A.D. And during that time, there are more heresies that are popping up, threatening this new church. It's an infant church. It's a baby church. It has very little leadership. There's, there's very little structure to it. And it's under attack all the time. It's under attack from the outside, from those who would persecute. It's under attack from the inside for those who would teach falsehood. 
And there are church councils that are called together. Men of God who gather together for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years in order to grapple with the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of those who were eyewitnesses to what Jesus said and did. Men whose names you, you've probably never heard. Men whose names most of history has forgotten. Ignatius, Polycarp, Athanasius, Tertullian and others. Men who fought and battled and grappled with the word of God to make sure that we could understand this glorious doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity that become the foundation of Orthodox Christianity. We take those things for granted today, but those things were fought for by those men in those early days, fighting against heresies that threatened the church. And the persecution grew and grew. In fact, the persecution would spike and, and then drop. There would ebb and flow. And, and by the middle of uh, about AD 250, take AD 250 to AD 261, it becomes known as the decade of horrors in church history. Tens of thousands of Christians are tortured, put to death, and imprisoned for their faith. By the time the bloodbath is over, Christians now fall into three categories. There's the martyrs. They didn't make it. There's the lapsi. They're the ones who lapsed in their faith, who recanted rather than face persecution, who, who claimed that they didn't believe that Jesus is God. And then there's the confessors. The confessors, you know a confessor when you meet one. You know why? Because they bear the marks of their confession on their bodies. They're... Their arms have been cut off in some cases. In some cases, their legs have been cut off. Their tongues have been removed. Their eyes have been gouged out. They've been whipped and beaten. They bear on their bodies the marks of their faith because they would not neglect their witness, because they would not reject the truth of the gospel, because they would not turn their backs upon Jesus. And those confessors become the leaders of the church moving forward. As we jump ahead to the fourth century, finally a break. Constantine determines that Christianity is to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, which will now be known as the Holy Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire makes it no longer illegal to be a Christian. No longer are Christians persecuted. In fact, anyone who persecutes a Christian is now persecuted. It is the official government religion. If you are a Roman citizen, you're called a Christian. And you say, oh, thank goodness, finally a break from the persecution. But if you think that way, you would be wrong. Because let me tell you something about the church. As you study church history, you find this. Whenever life gets easy for the church of Christ, the church gets lazy, the church gets fat, the church gets complacent, and bad times are ahead. The church has never done well when it was at ease. By the end of the 6th century, the light of the church was almost extinguished, and we enter a 1,000-year period that has become known as the Dark Ages. A thousand years where the presence of the church is driven underground, where those who call themselves the church are just Roman authoritarians. Uh, the church becomes a political entity that's run by the government. Bishoprics 
are sold to the highest bidder. In other words, bishops are overseers of large areas. They have great authority and power in that uh, Roman church. And they don't go to the men who are biblically qualified, according to Timothy and Titus. No, they go to the men who can pay the most for them because a bishopric becomes like a McDonald's franchise. It's a way to make money. And they're making money and getting over on the people. Only the priests have access to the Bible and they largely ignore it. This is a thousand year period. The political church becomes just another tool in the hand of the, of the powerful to oppress the weak. And the flames of the true church become like a flickering candle. But it's not burned out because God was not finished with his church. God was moving in the hearts of people who would set the stage for one of the greatest spiritual awakenings that the world has ever seen. They're known as the pre-reformers. Again, men whose names you might not know. People like John Hus, people like Peter Waldo, who, who actually looked at the scripture and preached an actual biblical view of the gospel. And eventually a man in England by the name of John Wycliffe. And Wycliffe, <clears throat> under threat of death, translates the Bible into common English for the first time. And he's told, You're gonna, you have to stop. If you don't stop, we're going to kill you. And he looks at those in charge and he says this, The day is coming when every plowboy in England will know the word of God better than you, the priest of the so-called church. And the word begins to get out. These men are tortured. They're put to death because of their devotion to Christ and the true gospel. But their sacrifices led to the Reformation. And in the time that we call the Reformation, men like Martin Luther in Germany, men like John Calvin in France and later in Switzerland, men like um, Huldrych Zwingli in Switzerland, they begin, to, they begin to encapsulate the essence of the gospel in a powerful way. They begin to build theological arguments of truth based on scripture. They begin to call the church back to practices that are more in keeping with the biblical faith. In 1517, <clears throat> Martin Luther goes to the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he hammers a, a paper to the, to the door of the Wittenberg church. And on it are 95 statements or 95 theses that he wants to debate the beef that he has with the so-called church. He's not trying to create a new church. He's not trying to split from the church. He's trying to call the church back to biblical righteousness. For example, <clears throat> Luther says, Romans tells us that, that it's the, the, the righteous are justified not by works, but by faith. And that's a shocking idea. And the church can't stand that idea. The political church. And the true gospel begins to get preached as a reformation spreads salvation by grace alone salvation by faith alone faith in Christ alone and this message gets out and revival breaks out across Europe lay preachers not priests not those who have been to seminary lay preachers who have been discipled to follow Jesus begin to go out into the countryside and they preach in the villages all over Europe 
and villages, whole villages are coming to know Christ. Bible teaching churches pop up all over Europe. The gospel is spreading like wildfire, but of course, there's more persecution. And after a period of time, the persecution becomes so difficult on those who want to just practice their faith in Jesus that many of them flee to the new world. And they come to North America where a society is being developed on the principle that man should be free to worship God. The American church flourishes in the colonial days until about the mid-18th century when secularism begins to just creep in to the fabric of the American culture. The society begins to decline in so many measurable ways. Organized crime becomes rampant. Alcoholism becomes commonplace. Political corruption is the order of the day. Racism and, and its uh, obvious um, counterpart, slavery, uh, rule the day. But even in that situation, God was not finished with his church yet. He raised up men who would lead the world into a time of great awakening. Men like John and Charles Wesley, brothers who came from England. The, the revival began in England, the first great awakening. And then they came to the United States and brought that same gospel. And suddenly the gospel with a fresh movement of the Spirit of God began to infiltrate people's lives. John Wesley, as a preacher, went around on horseback and preached everywhere he could possibly preach. And to this day, he is considered the human being who has rid, ridden the most miles on horseback. Why did he do it? He did it to preach the gospel in every corner, every village, and every hamlet. And with him, his brother Charles Wesley. Charles, not the preacher, but instead the hymn writer. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. Do the math. That's a couple hymns a day for his life. He wrote 6,000 hymns, and I'm not talking about obscure hymns that nobody ever sang. He wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He wrote, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. And a hundred other hymns that you and I are just used to singing and, and that church has grown up on. Men like Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, probably the greatest mind America has ever produced. And along with him, George Whitfield, a country preacher who preaches outdoors to groups of up to 100,000 people without amplification. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, thousands are swept in to the kingdom of God. The Declaration of Independence was born out of this time. The Constitution was born out of this time. The idea that there are human rights granted to all human beings by their creator, not by their government, came out of this time. But as we move into the 19th century, the pattern uh, repeats itself. Secularism, a country club mentality in the church, everyone is part of a church, but the church was never meant to be an institution. It was meant to be a movement. And it became this dead institutional thing where the movement of the Spirit was not happening in the ways that they had seen previously. And the movement called the church slowed to a crawl in the United States. But even then, God was not finished with His church. 
In the 19th century, we saw the second great awakening. The church turned its attention outward in this great awakening. As the spirit moved across the hearts of men, they began to care for hurting people. All kinds of amazing things happened as a result of this. Universities were born out of this. Hospitals were born out of this. Missions organizations, the end of slavery, all came as a result of this revival that God brought about. And it happened in Britain and it happened in the United States. And in both cases, slavery was abolished as a result of it. As we move into the 20th century, despite two world wars, many other challenges, the gospel spreads throughout the world. The gospel spreads in Asia in the 20th century. The gospel spreads in Africa in the 20th century. The gospel infiltrates South America in the 20th century. It reaches islands and small little countries that had never been reached before. In 1900, the name of Jesus had never been heard on the Korean Peninsula. In 1900, there were no Christians in Korea. By the year 2000, Korea had become the most Christianized nation in the history of the world based on per capita. And per capita, they are the greatest missionary sending country in the world today. God did that in the 20th century. China outlaws Christianity under Chairman Mao in the 60s and into the 70s. All the churches are shut down. All the pastors are jailed. All the missionaries are driven out and many of them are put to death. By the year 2000, there were upwards of 100 million believers in China. It is estimated today, although we have no certain reports, it is estimated today that the church in China has grown so large and so powerful and so influential that there may be more Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christians in the nation of China than there are people in the nation of the United States of America. That can only be done by a God who is greater than our wildest dreams through a church that is alive and well. I tell you today, God is not finished with his church. The gospel continues to spread and grow in Africa. I hear, I hear stories on a weekly basis of Muslims who are coming to Christ in the Middle East, places like Iran and Iraq, down in Morocco. It's amazing what is happening in Eastern Europe where Christianity was outlawed for the whole second half of the 20th century. There are healthy, growing, vibrant churches all over Eastern Europe today and the world is being changed. If persecution and violence and political corruption and heretical teachings and man-made laws could not stop the church of Jesus Christ, do you really think a virus is going to stop us? God is not finished with his church yet. Buildings are not required. Large gatherings are not required for us to be the church. Only the power of God, unleashed by the Spirit of God, among the people of God, through the proclamation of the Word of God, is all that's needed, and God does the rest. We have the opportunity, even during this strange and, and frightful season, to become the church that God always had in mind. Starting next week, we're going to take a, a look at the biblical view of what it means to be the church. You are invited to be part of it. Don't miss it. God's not finished with his church yet. Let's pray.
God, we're so grateful to see your power exhibited. A group of men who followed you, told to wait, struggling to wait, and the Holy Spirit comes, and from that day forward, you have not ceased to do your work in the world. God, we thank you that we get to be a part of that. What an incredible privilege we have to hear the gospel, to hold in our hands the word of God, to be filled with the spirit of God, to be called the people of God. We're your church, God, and you're not finished with us yet. Inspire us, encourage us, motivate us, challenge us, empower us, make us the church you've always had in mind. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.